Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have revealed to us, and that the more we read, the more we study, the more uh, you unfold to us as you illuminate our understanding and open the eyes of our soul to the truths that are in your word. Father, as we look at your word, we know the only way we can truly understand it is through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who uh, indwells and fills us, and that he is the one who is uh, the one who stores it in our soul, in our memory, and brings it to consciousness for application. And, Father, we pray that as we study your word that we might uh, be have the courage to be objective and as we look into the mirror of your word and be willing to uh, look at what it reveals to us about our own thinking and about our own lives. We pray that you would guide and direct us, keep us focused during this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 2 Kings chapter 13, so you may turn there as we continue our study. And really from this point on, what we see as far as the northern kingdom of Israel goes is a continuous deterioration of the northern kingdom into a rebellion against God, into apostasy, into degeneracy, and it is fueled by an increasing level of self-deception, which leads to self-destruction. This applies not just to the nation of Israel, but it applies to each individual believer. We can all come under uh, arrogance and the blindness of our own arrogance and self-absorption, and this, if it is not dealt with with the objective truth of God's Word, can lead to tremendous catastrophe in our own lives and in our own souls, because as we succumb to self-deception, it eventually will lead to self-destruction and all that comes with that. Romans chapter 1 really describes the dynamics that occur, and this is true even for someone who is not a uh, even for someone who is a believer, although the context of Romans 1 is talking about unbelievers a believer in rebellion against God, a believer that is not focused on God's word, still falls into this same trap. We read in Romans 1.20, 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, we can look at what exists in creation. We can, whether we're talking about certain large elements or systems within nature, such as weather systems or botany as a whole or biology as a whole, and just look at the complexity of and the diversity of life on the planet, and we can see something about uh, the one who created it. Or we can delve into the microscopic, and we can see the complexity of a DNA chain or a protein chain, we can look at the, all of the complexity that is, takes place inside of a cell, and we come to understand that all of this uh, information that is embedded at a microscopic level cannot just have come together by pure accident, by pure happenstance. And therefore, again, we learn something about the one who made us. Whenever you look at anything that has been created, whether you are looking at a work of art, whether you're looking or listening to music, or whether you are reading a work of literature, you learn something about the author, the artist, uh, the workman, by what they produce. And that is the what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, that his invisible attributes, notice the uh, juxtaposition of apparent opposites here, that his invisible attributes are clearly seen. We clearly understand these things, even though we may not be able to uh, articulate them. There is something, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, the soul of man is created for that relationship with God. And so as we look out upon creation, any human being, no matter how devout an atheist a person might be today, there was a time in their growth when they were young that they came to a point where they could make a decision as to whether or not they were going to pursue one direction or another in terms of responding to the evidence of, of God's character as seen in creation. So Paul says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, there's enough evidence out there in creation about the existence of God that no one can stand before the Supreme Court of Heaven and say, well, Lord... We, we just didn't see any evidence. There just wasn't any proof that you existed. We just, we just, we just didn't believe it. We were taught all of these things in school about, uh, time plus chance equals, uh, evolution. And, and yet, uh, so we, we just, we just didn't know. And God will make it clear in an instant in their minds that they did know and that it was clear and that in their volition they rejected it. Which is what the next verse says, because although they knew God, no matter how rank the atheist might be, whether it's Christopher Hitchens or whether it is uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare or someone like her, they all have known, the Scripture says, that God exists, and they know it, but they are suppressing that, as we'll see um, in this passage. Though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dar darkened. They made a choice 
to be deceived, to deceive themselves, and to suppress that truth. Verse 22 goes on to say, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. So instead of worshiping the Creator, man is going to worship something else because man is created by God in his soul in such a way that he must worship something. And so if you remove God and take him out of the the picture, you must worship something within the creation. You will worship uh, nature. You will worship ideas generated by man. You will worship yourself, but you will worship something. You will worship money. You will worship material things. You will worship uh, a success. Something like that becomes the focus of worship. And so there is this exchange that takes place. And the more man touts his intellectual achievements and denies God, the more foolish he becomes. And he exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And they're the ones who exchange the truth of God for the lie. So what this is saying is the position of the unbeliever is that they are living in delusion. They are living on the basis of a lie. They, When you reject the objective reality of the God of the Bible, then something takes its place. And what takes its place is a fantasy. What takes its place is a lie. What takes its place is a creaturely generated explanation of reality that's going to somehow give meaning and value and uh, justification for behavior uh, to our lives. And what the Scripture says is that all comes under the, the general delusion of this lie that pulls in every aspect of lie, life and everything that we see, and it redefines it imperceptibly, unconsciously, You go about your life as an unbeliever or as a rebellious believer, and everything you see is is instantly redefined. Instantly it's taken over and restructured and put within the framework of the, the lie that you have chosen to control your life. Charlie Clough uses the illustration of an amoeba that just, as soon as that other idea or uh, situation or circumstance appears, that amoeba just instantly, that amoeba of your human viewpoint lie, just instantly grabs it, absorbs it, redefines it, and yet we, and we all do this. I do this, you do this, every one of us does that. That's the, the sophistication of our sin nature, and it instantly redefines the, what we're, what we're seeing and what we're doing, and unless there is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, to take out a hammer and chisel and start breaking that lie apart, we would just end up in complete uh, self-destruction. So Romans chapter 1 gives us a, an analysis of what's going on in the nation of Israel because this is what's going on in the souls of the majority of those who live in the northern kingdom. Now, as we get into this 13th chapter, We focus on two kings in the northern kingdom, Jehoahaz and his son Jehoash, also known as Joash. Now, we just studied a Jehoash-Joash 
in the southern kingdom, and their lives overlap a little bit, but this is the Jehoash or Joash of the northern kingdom. And not a lot is said of either one, but enough is said to give us a pretty good understanding of the dynamics of what God is doing in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then in the conclusion of this chapter, we have an incident that involves Elisha. This is his closing scene as Elisha is in his final illness before he dies, and then uh, when he dies, uh, this is when this is uh, covered here in this particular this particular chapter. Now, what we have to recognize when we go to the Old Testament is that this was written initially to the initial audience of of uh, Israelites in order to teach them certain principles, certain spiritual realities, and to illustrate what had been stated and predicted by Moses back in. Uh, Deuteronomy, as Moses addressed the nation before they went into the land, he told them what would take place in coming years, how they would depart from the Lord, and how they would go through various uh, cycles of divine discipline, and how God would would uh, bring hardship, military conquest, uh, economic collapse into their lives in order to pressure them to bring them back to him. And then when they would turn back to him, then God would bless them, and they would go through these cycles of disobedience and uh, repentance or change or turning to God and then a blessing from God. And then they would once again fall into the trap of self-deception and living uh, on the basis of a lie that that they told themselves. And so we see this happen uh, as a nation, and that's what's being illustrated in these episodes, but the nation is composed of individuals. And so individuals are doing the same thing. And the individuals of that time aren't any different from the individuals of our time or the nations of our time. So there are a lot of principles of application here for what happens when nations succumb to a lie, when nations succumb to self-deception, and what happens to the individuals uh, within those nations that succumb to uh, self-deception. And we uh, it always comes out of the sin nature. The sin nature is the source of arrogance in our life. It is the very orientation of the sin nature is towards self, self-absorption. And in its arrogance, it is focused on a lie, which deceives us into thinking that somehow we can live our lives apart from God. And so we construct various lies, various fables, various myths, various constructs to uh, tell ourselves that life is really good, that we can make it work apart from God, we can have success, and we can have, have happiness, and we can find real meaning in life without having to do what God says to do in his word. We really don't, don't need to be students of the word as much as we need to uh, learn how to be successful in our careers or we need to be successful in our families as parents or we just need to have a really great time in life pursuing a lot of fun. And those are just some of the various lies that are promoted in our uh, civilization and our generation. When you take a majority of people in a nation who are living according to a lie, and the more sophisticated the lie and the more consistently they live on the basis of that lie, then that whole nation then begins to drift in the direction of 
those lies and operates on the basis of lies, uh, distortions, and various fraudulent views of reality. And yet they believe these things are true in the very core of their being. And this impacts every dimension of life. It impacts money and how money is handled and how money is is printed or how money is valued. It affects business, how business is conducted, how contracts are made, the, the language of contracts, how problems are solved when they affect large numbers of people. It affects language and the uh, meaning of language and how language is twisted and distorted to mean uh, certain things in order to fit the parameters of the of the big lie. It also affects scholarship. It affects academia because you have uh, scholars and professors and academics that are set on being the great apologist for the great lie. And so they are constantly uh, promoting and defending the lie. And they are publishing this in the uh, magazines and journals and newspapers that pander to those who promote the lie, and this all begins to build a, a civilization that, that more, as time goes by, more and more is just built upon this lie. Now, when you get a number of nations who cooperate at an international level on the basis of this lie, then you will begin to see the kind of circumstances set up that will lead to the end-time scenario and eventually uh, to the campaign of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period because that's the only direction it can go. It started with the arrogance of, of Lucifer before Genesis 1 when Lucifer wanted to be like God. And once he committed that sin of arrogance and he uttered his five I wills, uh, all focusing on his desire to be elevated above God and to be worshipped as God, then everything else falls out from that lie. And so Satan is really the chief architect of this whole uh, approach to living on the basis of a lie and self-deception. Now, in the... Old Testament, God warned Israel about living on the basis of this lie. And what's the core lie as we saw in Romans chapter 1? The core lie isn't what modern psychologists tell you might be their favorite lie for this decade. The lie, according to Scripture, is the lie that somehow God doesn't really exist and that what really determines reality is something within creation, something that is ultimately defined, generated, and set forth by individual creatures. That's what Romans 1 says. The lie starts with God. Is there, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God of the universe, or not? That's your foundation stone. And if you reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the creator God of the universe, the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, then once you reject that, you're ultimately elevating to that level something inside of creation, either an idea or a thing or an animal or just humanity, uh, humanity itself. That's why the first two commandments... In the Ten Commandments focused on worshiping the Lord God alone. Because once you shift 
from that foundation, then everything else tumbles out in terms of the great deception. And so what was the big problem in the northern kingdom of Israel? Remember, we studied this as we went through Kings, is that after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam uh, ascended the throne, that he listened to the young, arrogant counselors that he had who insisted that in order to maintain the facade of their materialistic lifestyle and the facade of wealth and grandeur that they had had at one time under Solomon because of God's blessing, but had gradually deteriorated over time in the latter years of Solomon's reign because of the Solomon's idolatry and the disobedience of the people. But they were they were forcing themselves to live in, in, in as if they still had the affluence, the prosperity, and the material blessing that they had once had. And so uh, they wanted to increase taxation increase taxation so that they could get more money from the people in order to maintain this uh, external facade. Now, there's something vaguely familiar about that whole methodology, isn't there? Uh, and it goes down through the ages. We see civilization after civilization, empire after empire, nation after nation following this same arrogant path. And so what happens as the uh, as Rehoboam was going to uh, intensify the taxation, the northern ten tribes revolted and separated themselves into the northern kingdom of Israel, and they appointed Jeroboam the first to be their king. And Jeroboam recognized that he could not bring a cohesion, a unity to the northern kingdom if every... Uh, three or four months, you had all of his people going down to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, to celebrate one of the one of the pilgrim feasts that were mandated by the law. Uh, so he recognized that that he needed to have a, a, an alternative religion. He needed to have his own worship centers in the northern kingdom so that he could keep everybody at home in the north uh, at these various times. And so he erected two golden calves, one in uh, Bethel in the southern part of the northern kingdom and one in Dan in the northern part of the kingdom so that the people in the north would come and worship there. And so at this point, he leads the people into idolatry. There is the rejection of the creator God, the construction of a metal god made of gold, and then he assigns a name to this god and said, this is the god who brought you out of Egypt. This is the god who redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. It wasn't that god they worship in the south down there on the Temple Mount. It is uh, this uh, golden calf that we have constructed here in the north. And so that led them into idolatry. Once they make this mental shift into this, this deception then everything else begins to collapse, and it collapses both because God has constructed reality that it can't survive, you can't continue to live in prosperity and happiness on the basis of a lie, and then God intensifies these consequences in terms of these various stages or cycles of discipline that are outlined in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy 28, uh, 28 and 29. And we've studied those uh, several times in the past. And so the northern kingdom has gone through this. And, and if you start with their the prosperity that they had, 
at the time of Solomon's death. And even though they, they have periods where they come back to, an, to a, a, a time of temporary prosperity, it never goes back to the glory, glory days of Solomon. And you can follow their trajectory, and it's just sliding downhill. The more apostate they become, the more they, the more they are sold out to, to living according to this lie, then there is intensified discipline. They've had famines. They've had wars. They've lost territory. And this has continued on and on, even though there are times when they may win back part of the territory because of God's grace, even though there are temporary situations where a king in the north may address God and come to God for for aid, for deliverance. It is only a temporary thing. But God, in his grace, continues to extend uh, aid to those who are in rebellion. And so part of what we see here is a tremendous example of the grace of God. Well, in the first nine verses of this chapter, we have a summary of the reign of Jehoahaz in the north. Now, I created this little chart up here to help you uh, visualize the, the differences of these, uh, these individuals that we're going to talk about. In the upper part, we have the kings of the northern kingdom, and I've just put four in. We'll fill out the others as we go along. But if you remember, Jehu was the one who was anointed by uh, uh, Elisha, called by uh, God to a specific task to completely annihilate the house of Omri, the house of Ahab, the evil uh, house of Ahab that had brought uh, the fertility religion, the Baal worship, into the northern kingdom. And yet, as obedient as Jehu was to that commission, Jehu never fully destroyed the high places, and he kept the idols in the golden calves in uh, Bethel and in Dan operational. So he continued in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is the drumbeat that we hear as we see the evaluation of every king uh, in the northern kingdom. Jehu dies in 814, and he is succeeded by Jehoahaz, who is the individual that is uh, covered in the first part of this chapter. Uh, Jehoahaz will die in 798 and will be succeeded by his son, uh, Jehoash. Jehoash will die in 782, but during the latter part of his reign, in fact, during the uh, a majority of his reign, he is going to have a co-regency with his son, Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II is the last uh, king in the north that that is going to restore territory and bring the people back to a facade of prosperity. It's God's final act of grace toward the northern kingdom uh, before he will bring them into judgment. Note that he, uh, Jehoash, die, uh, Jeroboam II rather dies in 753 and in 722, 30 years later, and some five or six or seven kings later, the northern kingdom will be destroyed by the Assyrians. And during this period of time, we're already hearing sort of the rumble in the distance of the rise of the Assyrian Empire. In the south at this time, we've looked at Joash in the previous chapters. His dates are 835 to 796. And so he covers the period of, of uh, part of Jehu's, the last part of Jehu's reign, 
all of uh, Jehoahaz's reign, and then he has a, a small two-year overlap with his uh, the one who has a similar name in the north, Jehoash. And so that will kind of give us a little bit of a of a timeline orientation to these kings. So the the two that we're focusing on in this chapter are in the north, Jehoahaz, the second one, and Jehoash, his son, the third one. So I'll just leave that up there so that you can uh, look at that if you get a little confused. Now what we learn here is that in these verses that Jehoahaz is the son of Jehu. Jehu was the great reformer, but he only went so far. But Jehoahaz is like his father. He uh, reigns in the north. He reigns for 17 years, somewhat of a shorter time. But his evaluation is that he continues in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in verse 2, who had made Israel sin, and he did not depart from them. And so the delusion continues. The self-deception continues. The nation is living on the basis of a lie. Their understanding of their purpose is a lie. Their understanding of reality is a lie. And this infiltrates everything they do. It infiltrates their family life because the men are going off and some of the women to the uh, temples to the temple prostitutes in order to uh, have prosperity. That was the, for, in an agricultural society, prosperity is marked by fertility. And so they're going to the temple prostitutes in order to uh, encourage the gods somehow to imitate them and give them fertility or prosperity. It is a worship of success. It's a worship of the possession of material things as providing the meaning in life. It is worshiping things as the source of value in everything in life. And so they continue on this course of self, uh, self-deception. And as God promised, he is going to bring in a uh, punishment from the north. If you look at this map, you see the northern kingdom is uh, outlined in the purple color, but to the Upper right up to the northeast of the of the purple area, we have designated Aram, which is modern Syria. Sometimes we'll refer to this simply as Syria, and above that you have uh, the location of Damascus. And this has now been under the control of Hazael. Remember, Hazael was the king that was also anointed by Elisha to bring judgment on the northern kingdom. And Elisha broke down in tears when he looked at Hazael at the time that he anointed him because he saw how egregiously, how horribly, how violently he would treat the uh, northern kingdom. And this was indeed true, and this is, we see some of it in this, in this chapter. And so this is the circumstance in the northern kingdom that God is going to bring the Arameans, the Syrians, as it were, into against them militarily under Hazael and bring tremendous suffering and hardship. Verse 3, we read of the judgment of God. Then the wrath of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of Hazael, the king of Syria, and then into the hand of Ben-Hadad. This would be Ben-Hadad III. We've run into that name before. It was a sort of a dynastic name, Hadad being one of the gods of their pantheon. So the name literally meant the son of uh, Hadad. And so Ben-Hadad III, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Finally, under this pressure, Jehoahaz crumbles a little bit, 
and he turns to the Lord for help. So he's not as evil as some of the kings in the northern kingdom. He is probably a believer. He has some understanding of who the true God is. He is not completely uh, uh, blinded by self-deception and with enough pressure, though, like so many Christians, if God just uh, puts enough pressure into your life, you'll finally show up at church once in a while and hope that because you darken the door of church that somehow God will solve whatever the problem is you're facing now, and then as soon as that's solved, you disappear. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. He delivered them into the uh, hand of Hazael, and then in verse 4, rather, so Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. And so God is going to deal with them in grace. It's not because they deserve it. They're not really changing. It's only a superficial shift. They're just crying out in pain, quit punishing me. They're not recognizing the, the real sin and the deceptiveness of their own of their own soul. So the Lord gave them a, de- a deliverer. But notice, who's the deliverer? The deliverer isn't a Jewish hero. It's not an Israelite hero. This is like when God raised up Shamgar back in uh, the early part of the book of Judges uh, between uh, Ehud and Deborah. He raises up Shamgar, who's never called a judge, but he raises up Shamgar to defeat the Philistines And it's at a time because there's so much apostasy in Israel that there's no one in Israel that God can raise up to deliver them. And that's the same thing here. There's nobody in the northern kingdom that God can raise up to deliver them. And so he he raises up the power of the Assyrians under Adad Nerari III, who was uh, the... uh, king of Assyria from 811 to 783, and he begins to invade the uh, invade uh, Syria from the northeast. So here's a map, and over here we see the territory of Assyria, and then down over here is Damascus, and during this period Assyria is headed to the south uh, southwest, and so uh, Ben-Hadad can't continue to fight. Uh, in, against Israel, he has to turn around and wa- watch his uh, other other side, watch his rear, as he's being attacked by the Assyrians. And so, once he has to shift his attention to the Assyrians, then it takes all the pressure off of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, they continue. Now, notice how they respond. Like good believers should respond, right? They. Um, they recognize that they've been under divine discipline, so they humble themselves under the hand of God and turn to him and uh, turn, turn back to walk in obedience, right? No, that's not what they do. Verse 6, Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. So these wooden images were the images of the Asherah, the female fertility goddess that uh, they constructed in various places up in the hills, and that is where they would go and carry out various perverted actions in order to motivate the gods to make them uh, prosperous. Now, nevertheless, there were still some harsh negative consequences, as we see in verse 7. Militarily, they are wiped out. 
and so they don't have much left in terms of an army. That which they had looked at for security rather than God is taken away from them. And so they are, uh, again, warned. God deals with them in grace, gives them a level of deliverance, but still they refuse to to look at reality. They are still operating on self-deception. They are still willfully blind to reality because the basic problem isn't intellectual. The basic problem isn't financial. It's not environment. It's not social. It's volitional, and they don't want to worship God. And that's the basic, always the basic problem in any civilization, in any nation, and that's what brings about divine discipline. Well, then we learn in verse 9 that Jehoahaz died. He rested with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria, and he succeeded by his son, Joash. Verses 10 to 13 summarize the reign of Jehoash. And not much has happened during his reign that is of, of real value. He's the next king, and he just continues the same policies of self-deception and running the nation on the basis of a lie. We learn in verse uh, 10 that uh, he reigns for 16 years, but verse 11 tells us he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin but walked in there. Just that steady drumbeat all the way through the kings of the northern kingdom. They continue in this sin. They live on the basis of a lie and on the basis of self-deception. But there, again, is still a little bit of interest in God and hope and understanding of the truth in Jehoash. And that comes out in the next episode, beginning in verse 14, which describes the death of Elisha, describing the death of Elisha. And so Elisha had become sick, we're told in verse 14, sick with the illness with which he would die, and Jehoash, the king of Israel, came down to him. Now, this must have taken place very early in Jehoash's reign, not long after he came to the throne. And he comes down, and notice he weeps over Elisha. There is some sense in his youth that there is value to Elisha, and he does represent uh, truth and represent God. And he says to him, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now remember, this same phrase was used back when Elisha was addressing Elijah, and Elijah is then going to depart to heaven. And many people think that that what they saw, what when, when Elisha spoke this line, that what he saw was a chariot coming for Elisha. But you see, here there's no chariot coming for. I mean, coming for the uh, uh, the chariot coming for Elijah. Here there's no chariot coming for Elisha. This is a title that is being given to the prophet because he represents the power of God in the spiritual conflict that Israel is at the center of. And so he is addressed as the one who is the real power of Israel. It's not their physical military might, which they finally understood because that's been decimated. They only... The only military might they have comes from the hand of God. And he gives this title, ascribes uh, this power to Elisha, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And then we have this 
odd little episode that takes place, and there's some things that are left out here which would really give us a better clue because it has to do with the culture at the time. Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows, and then Elisha instructs him, uh, put your hand on the bow. So he takes the bow, and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Now, this is like in an ordination ceremony or something when we uh, uh, pastors who are ordained will put their hands on the heads of the person they're ordaining. It shows an identification and a, a transfer of authority, and, and that's what he is doing. He is he is talking to uh, the young king, and this is an opportunity for the king to really trust God and rely upon God to, to provide for him in a very rich and abundant way. And then Elisha gives him instructions. He says, open the east window, uh, which he does, and Elisha says, shoot. Now, he's got a quiver of arrows there, and he uh, shot one arrow. And Elisha uh, interprets it for him and says, this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek until you have destroyed them. And then Elisha said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, now strike the ground. doesn't tell him how many times. It's up to him to decide how many times he's going to strike the ground. And he just strikes the ground three times. He could have hit the ground five times or ten times or twenty times, but he only does it three times, for which uh, limitation Elisha gets angry with him in the next verse and says, uh, it says the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it, but now you will strike Syria only three times. In other words, you'll defeat him, but you won't completely uh, remove the problem. Now, what is going on here with this whole uh, bow and arrow thing? Well, I think that uh, there are a number of passages we could go to to illustrate this, but one that perhaps uh, gives us the most clarity is in Psalm 127, 3 through 5, as the psalmist is praising uh, God for the gift of children. And in Psalm 127, verse 3, we read, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is a reward. That sort of challenges a lot of the thinking today. Uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. A warrior uses an arrow in order to defeat the enemy, recognition that we are in a spiritual conflict, and parents have a prime role in that conflict in, the, in raising up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that they can go out within this spiritual warfare and this spiritual conflict in order to have a positive influence for the Lord in the midst of the devil's world. And so the children that you have, the children that you rear, the children that you train, you are training them to be effective spiritual uh, warriors. That is the picture here. It is a picture of influence and the defeat of the enemy of the people of God. And then Psalm 127.5 says, Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. Don't just settle for having one or two arrows, but have a quiver that is full of them because the more ammunition you have, the more of the enemy you can destroy. That is the 
uh, imagery that is used here. So when we look at the use of this uh, bow and arrow imagery here in Second Kings, it is a picture of using uh, the Lord as a military warrior to defeat his enemies because the enemies of Israel are the enemies of God. And so the idea for the military, I mean, for the spiritual warrior is to fully trust God in the sufficiency of his grace and his power and not to limit it, but to exploit it. And I always think of the story of uh, my friend Jim Myers, who was down here in Houston back in the early 70s, and uh, he was uh, at, at a church, and they were getting rid of their library. And the um, pastor said, well, go in there and take whatever books you want, and the rest we'll give to somebody else. And he went in and took one or two boxes of books. And later he said, I just wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole library. I should have done it. See, we limit ourselves, we, we limit our willingness to exploit the grace of God, and that's exactly what Jehoash did here. Rather than uh, beating the ground six or seven times in order to secure a complete victory, he limits from his own, based on his own limited view of God, because of, he's bought into the lie, he limits what he thinks God can do, and so he only strikes the ground three times. Now, he understands the significance of this imagery in terms of the defeat of the, of the enemy. It's, the culture is different, and the imagery and everything is different, a little hard for us to grasp, but he understood it. And he knew that this was a depiction of uh, exploiting God's power in the military uh, conflict. And so he is limited because what happens when we live according to the lie and we live according to self-deception, then the more we live according to the lie and the more we live according to self-deception, the more we are limited in our relationship to God. And so then we're told about Elisha's death in verses 20 and 21. He dies, they buried him, and then there are some raiding bands from Moab that come into the land the next spring. And uh, as they came <coughs> came up and these marauders were attacking, they came by a funeral party that were burying a man. And uh, as they were burying this man, they spied a band of these raiders coming. And so rather than uh, f- completing the tomb and the burial for the man, they just opened up the tomb of Elisha and put the man in Elisha's tomb. And it says, when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is a resurrection. He's brought back to life. What's going on here? Is this magic? No, it's not magic. It fits the pattern that we've seen in Elisha's ministry. If we think back to what we saw starting in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha's ministry focused on the message of life and hope and meaning that comes from only God, and that the people were instead devoted to the worship of Baal and the Asherah, and the result was that they were under divine discipline, and God would bring famines and military invasions and oppression, and so the people were miserable, and yet Elisha's message was a message of real hope that hope and life comes only in a relationship with God. And so here's just one last example of bringing life where there is death, and that only comes through God and through the message of his prophets. 
And then we have a uh, closing uh, statement in verse verses 22 to 25. And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. He is, they don't deserve this. They don't deserve anything more than increased discipline. But what the way God works with the disobedient child, the disobedient believers, to take them through some discipline, then treat them in grace, give them that opportunity to turn back to God, turn back in obedience. And then if they don't, he increases the pressure, increases the judgment again, which is the pattern we'll see as we continue our study in Second Kings. And he was gracious to them and had compassion on them, not because of who they are, but because God regarded the covenant, regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It goes back to that gracious covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land. And because of that, God would not destroy them or cast them from his presence. And then we're told that Hazael, king of Syria, died, and his son Ben-Hadad took his place, and then things became only worse as Ben-Hadad began to attack them, but that God gave a measure of grace to Jehoash, and he did recover uh, some of the cities that uh, Hazael had taken from the northern kingdom earlier. And this begins a process of recovery for the northern kingdom for a while is their last little bit of hope as God treats them in grace before uh, the final judgment. Now, as we look at this example, I want to point out that there are various ways in which we see the same thing going on uh, in the world around us today. As Christians in the United States, we live in the midst of spiritual warfare. We are to be successful warriors persevering within the angelic conflict, growing, maturing in the Lord, and studying his word. We are not to succumb to the lie, the lie that permeates every civilization. The Bible refers to this as just worldliness. In every civilization, every uh, nation has their own zeitgeist. Every, every generation has its own zeitgeist or spirit of the times. And yet when we're born and raised into a nation, into a culture, we pick this up from teachers, from parents, from peers, from television, from movies, and our minds are constantly being assaulted by very sophisticated and intellectual arguments against Christianity and the truth of God's Word, and very sophisticated and intellectual arguments to... Uh, support and to defend the way of the world. Now, the church, the preaching and teaching from the pulpits of America must meet those attacks with the same level of sophistication and intellectual rigor. Otherwise, there will not be anyone in the pews in the next generation. This is what's happened in England. This is what has happened in Europe. As the content of the pulpit ministries became diluted with the human viewpoint rationalizations and rationalism of the of 19th century liberal Protestantism, 
it absolutely eviscerated Christianity of any biblical truth and biblical content. So that by now you go to these wonderful, beautiful churches in England and on the continent, and some are museums, some are gyms, some just sit there empty with two people in them on Sunday, some have been converted in England into mosques, but the strength of Christianity no longer is there. And that is because the Word of God was rejected. And the people are living in a fantasy world. The nations are living in a fantasy world, and the people are living in a fantasy world. As a nation, we are living on the basis of a number of fantasies. We live on a financial fantasy. We have spent money that we didn't have. We've operated on a philosophy of economics for the last 70 years that has encouraged deficit spending, has encouraged living on the basis of debt rather than living on that which we actually uh, had. As a result, we have committed financial resources and made promises that we would spend money that we don't have. And this is coming, going to come to bear, especially in California, uh, very soon, that because of, uh, they have so many government pension plans for, uh, civil workers, for teachers, for police, for firemen, that they don't have the money, they don't have the financial resources to fund those. And, uh, Recent study suggests that within the next three years, nearly every major municipality in California will be bankrupt. We have decided that we will give free services to illegal immigrants. We will give all kinds of social benefits and programs and food and housing uh, to all kinds of people who do not work or produce and are encouraged to never work or produce. And we have allowed civil workers, teachers, police, firemen, etc., to unionize, and then those unions have demanded these pension fa- these pension funds. And in many cases, when the, as these uh, workers, these teachers, police, firemen, other government workers at the state level retire, they're making more money in their retirement check than they made when they were actually working as a teacher, police, or in some other area. And Los Angeles is just on the cusp of having to go bankrupt because they they can cut out everything else that they do and take all their tax revenue, and they still don't have enough money just to fund the pension plans. That's what happens when you live on the basis of a lie. And we've been doing that financially. We've done it militarily. We're in a battle against Islamofascist Islam against these radicals, and we have failed to identify the enemy strategically. We have identified instead a tactic as the enemy. We have said the enemy is terrorism. That would be like going back to World War II and saying that the enemy was the Blitzkrieg. Uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, who's running for Congress in, uh, in Florida, uh, has pointed this out, that, that we don't go to war against a tactic We go to war against a people, a nation, or an ideology. Yet we are so afraid of Islam and militant Islam that we will not define the enemy. So we live on the basis of a lie and say, we're battling terrorism. That's like saying we're at war against anger. We're at war against stupidity. 
We're at war against ignorance. That's not why you go to war. A nation goes to war because there is a well-defined enemy that seeks to destroy that nation. And yet we don't have the, uh, we don't have the courage to define the enemy. So we live on the basis of a military, uh, military lie. We are at war with jihadist, Wahhabi, Islamofascism, and we need to define it as such and identify the, as, uh, former President Bush did, define the axis of evil and make it clear who the enemy is. We live on the basis of a political fantasy that we still have leaders in Washington that genuinely want to follow, support, and defend the U.S. Constitution. We live on a moral fantasy that we can live in moral relativism. We can legalize homosexual marriage and legalize uh, illegal drugs and that we can uh, have open borders and we can call right wrong and wrong right and it won't really destroy the nation. And then we live on the worst of all, which is the cause of all the others, a spiritual fantasy that there is a separation of church and state and we can restrict God to a, uh, a little closet or cubbyhole on Sunday and the rest of the week we can live as if he doesn't exist. And this goes under the, the uh, false statement of separation of church and state. This nation was not founded on separation of church and state. That's not found in the Constitution. That term comes out of a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a Baptist church in Danforth, Connecticut, and it, in the context, it means just the opposite of what, it, what it's used to mean today. In fact, the um, second or the First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. For the first hundred plus years of this republic, the emphasis on court decisions was that Congress cannot make any law that prohibits the free exercise of religion. But now, since World War II, the focus has been on the first part of that, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And so they view anything that comes along that has something to do with Christianity as the government trying to establish religion, and they make laws then that actually violate the next clause that pro- because it restricts or prohibits the free exercise thereof. We, the spiritual problem is the, core, is the source of all other problems. This nation was always thought by its founders to be a Christian nation. In fact, John Jay, who was one of the uh, first Supreme Court justices, wrote in a letter to John Murray on October 12, 1815, almost all nations have peace or war at the will and pleasure of rulers whom they do not elect and who are not always wise or virtuous. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers And it is a duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. In fact, many states had laws that you couldn't even elect somebody who wasn't a Christian to public office. Financially, we do this, and and we do the same thing individually. Financially, we live on debt. Uh, Romans chapter 13 says, owe nothing to anyone. And so, but personally, we're strung out on credit card debt and all kinds of other manners of death. We invest in businesses we don't know anything about. We trust people we have no real knowledge of and who, it turns out, lack all integrity. 
Morally, we subscribe to the same relativistic thinking as our next-door pagan neighbor, and we're just like the Jews during the period of the judges. We do everything that is right in our own eyes. And spiritually, we think we're okay because we go to the right church. We, go, we sit under the pastor who believes the right things, and we hear the right things, but we don't implement the right things. We go to church on Sunday. Uh, occasionally we might uh, open up our Bible and we might look at notes, but because we're so busy, we really don't have time to put our focus on the teaching of the Word of God and letting it transform our lives. The spiritual life, though, is the real issue in a nation. The reason we have problems isn't because we ha- have elected the wrong, of- wrong officials. The reason we have problems and the reason we elected the wrong officials is because the nation has turned its back on God. And if we don't get the spiritual solution right, then uh, political tea parties and uh, getting a lot of people out to the polls and all of these other solutions will have no effect. They're just like the band-aids that the northern kingdom uh, put on the situation, just like Jehovah has going to uh, God and praying for deliverance, but there's no real change because of self-deception. And the solution starts first with the gospel, that people have to understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, and they must trust in Christ as Savior. And second, they must grow. 1 Peter 2.2 says that we are to desire or hunger for the milk of the word like a newborn babe. It's not an option. It's a command. We're to hunger for the word. It's not something we do when we have time. If we don't have time for the word, then we will destroy everything else in our lives. Because if you don't think you have time to study the Word, then you are living in the same self-deceptive lie that dominated the northern kingdom. And it will have the same result, which is self-destruction and eventually national destruction. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that everything ultimately goes back to you. Everything starts with you. Everything flows out of our devotion, our understanding of who you are as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and the God who loved us in such a way that you sent your Son to die on the cross that anyone who believes in him should have life and not perish. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. We pray that those here who have trusted Christ and who have come to understand the truth of the gospel, that they would recognize that their spiritual life is important, not just for them, not just for their family, but for the health of this nation. Only on the basis of truth can we have real happiness, real prosperity, and real meaning in life, and expose to us through the teaching of your word all of the many lies and self-deceptive strategies we adopt in order to try to make life work apart from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.